Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Liberty, prosperity, beauty. That third word might seem a bit of an outlier. I mean, what does beauty have to do with liberty and prosperity? No one is going to argue against beauty, I suppose, but for those of us who get up in the morning with a yearning to advance freedom, should we really be thinking about beauty as well? Those three words are the guiding principle of the first group we'll hear from today, the Common Sense Society, and the concept of beauty and human flourishing drives the other groups we'll talk to as well, Scala Foundation and the National Civic Arts Society. You know, there's a misconception about donors' trust that all our grant-making goes to think tanks and policy groups. In fact, donors working with us at Donors' Trust have a diverse group of interests, including the groups you're going to hear from today. It's why I'm excited to share these groups with you, because for some of you, this is going to reach into interests that both overlap with topics we regularly address on the show, but also touch on ideas that are very different. So let's jump in. Well, as I said at the top, the Common Sense Society is organized to promote the principles of liberty, prosperity, and beauty, both in America and abroad. And it does this in a variety of ways, and I'm so happy to have the Society's president and CEO, Marion Smith, here to share more about what the organization does. Uh, So, Marion, you're first up on today's show, so I'm going to turn to you by first letting you define for the listeners what you, what the Common Sense Society, really mean by beauty. Um, so you're first up on today's show, uh, so I'm going to turn to you to let you start by defining for listeners what you and the Common Sense Society really mean by beauty. It's not necessarily a term in libertarian circles, certainly even in conservative circles that gets tossed around all that much. Right. Well, it's the opposite of ugly and ugliness, and I think we understand it as that which gives meaning to life and hopefully elevates our condition as, as humans on this question of beauty, we're very much guided by the late Sir Roger Scruton, uh, who, although being a, a free marketeer and someone very much committed to individual liberty um, and was active you know, behind the Iron Curtain in the 70s and the 80s in Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Poland, supporting those um, underground universities and dissidents, he was nevertheless very much committed to uh, beauty and aesthetics. And um, he, in, in his words, uh, beauty is an ultimate value, something that we pursue for its own sake and for the pursuit of which no further reason need be given. Beauty should therefore be compared to truth and goodness, one member of a trio of ultimate values which justify our rational inclinations. So in terms of our approach, we're certainly not trying to be taste uh, gatekeepers uh, or something like that, but we are um, we are giving uh, credence to I think the very commonsensical idea that our environment, the tangible physical things we interact with every day, uh, does shape how we see the world. It shapes our ideas, uh, shapes how we interact with other humans in in community. Um, Churchill said, "We shape our buildings; thereafter, they shape us." 
And one of the very interesting things we're looking into now is how built environments um, release, you know, fight or flight uh, chemicals in our brains. Um, it's clear that certain kinds of brutalist structures uh, touching more glass and steel than wood and stone uh, has an effect on the human um, psyche and physiology. And this is now some scientific research being done. Surely an understanding of that can guide how we build schools, for example, uh, which any survey of that uh, shows that we're building schools that look more like prisons did in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, surely uh, that's something that we should be getting further away from. So I think liberty, prosperity and beauty, those are our aspirational goals. I think in liberty, political philosophy, um, everyone would say liberty is better than tyranny. In economics, everyone would say voluntary exchange and free enterprise is better than collectivism. Um, I believe you can say the same thing in terms of aesthetics, not that we're ever going to be able to perfectly define beauty, but we know when we're getting closer or further away from it. And uh, so in practical terms, we try to um, give students and, and educators and our fellows and members access to the tangible um, aspects of beauty. We celebrate our civilization and culture. Uh, and, and, and that's through practicums where we um, engage in, in drawing um, or, or painting. Uh, we have put together a number of uh, musical trios and orchestras um, in, in terms of music education and just access. Uh, we don't just talk about culture. We're, we're trying to do it and to celebrate, again, our, our great Western heritage and the conversation that's still ongoing. And I guess that kind of comes that that puts a good bottom line on it, right? Celebrating Western heritage, which really rolls up to that tri-legged stool of liberty, prosperity, and beauty. Is that that fair to say kind of the, the underpinnings of the whole mission? I think that's very much key. Um, we're, we're proud of our Western heritage. We're proud of our civilization. Uh, we want to invite, you know, new generations into this shared culture, this history. Um, imperfect though it is, uh, it, it is ours. And uh, beauty and, 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 and home are two words that are very much connected. This is our home. Uh, we need to leave it better than we found it. We need to learn the lessons of history. But there's an ongoing conversation uh, in, in, in uh, Western countries that's been going on for millennia now. It, it comes out of the Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman uh, heritage that we have. If you look at how our founding fathers um, understood their role, it was very much building on and improving um, their own uh, culture, their own civilization. And interestingly, almost to a person, uh, the, the founders paid an awful lot of attention uh, to music, to art, to aesthetics, architecture, civic art, uh, even in the design, of course, of Washington, D.C., um, it, itself, which, which is hearkening back to those uh, virtues and aesthetics coming out of the, the ancient world. So you mentioned a bit ago the the fellows and the, your fellowship program, if I can be so bold, seems to be the marquee program for a common sense society. Tell us about this fellowship or, or the, the various fellowships that you offer. And Well, this, this, um, this program, what we call fellowships, are five-day long um, seminars uh, for about 25 uh, fellows who, who, who apply and are, and are selected. And we pair them with seven or eight scholars, and usually in, in a somewhat secluded place. Often it's a chateau or a castle in Europe or 
uh, a similar uh, setup in the United States to try to create just a, a small universe of of ideas that we can engage vigorously over the course of those days, exploring these fundamental questions. And um, this comes out of the origins of the Common Sense Society, uh, which in 2009 was started by a group of uh, graduate students, university students at that time in Budapest, Hungary. And uh, it was really a response to an effort to cancel um, the debating society that that I was president of at Central European University at the time. And uh, around that time, Roger Scruton, who I mentioned, um, I met him and he recognized a, a similar um, a similar dampening of free speech and intellectual inquiry uh, between you know, our experience with Central European University and his experience supporting underground universities and dissidents in the 1970s and 80s. And by virtue of that, our next step was then to just in a volunteer way host uh, our first fellowship. And so for 10 years, we just kept Common Sense Society running as a volunteer effort, pretty much underground. And we developed uh, a few hundred alumni over that time uh, from Hungary, uh, the Netherlands, the UK, the US, um, other countries in Europe as well, Latin America. And two years ago, we decided that uh, we were going to ramp up the Common Sense Society. We, we uh, reconstituted our Council of Trustees. Um, I became full-time CEO. We began to hire staff, establish an office uh, in the United States. And so we definitely wanted to keep up this fellowship program. It's been surpassed now by our, you know, middle and high school uh, education programs and some of our civic initiatives. Um, but the fellowship program is still very much uh, important to uh, to what we do. Uh, it is a very important recruitment tool for us at this point. We've hired a number of fellows uh, to become full time staff and. And then alumni are part of our brain trust, and they're contributing on uh, intellectual projects and conferences and uh, writing for our forthcoming magazine. Uh, so it's it's a, it is definitely a key part of the common sense universe. And I think you know you mentioned your primary school age programs. It, it does look like you're starting to get into teacher training, which uh, several other groups are doing as well. Talk to us about what you're doing there. Right, so uh, we're going to be a little platoon in this in this ecosystem uh, that is trying to improve uh, young Americans' understanding of our history, of basic economics, uh, and what it means to be a good citizen. Uh, we we have launched a American Civics Project. Uh, we're developing a number of curricular modules and uh, working on a full curriculum. Uh, that is designed to be sort of inserted by teachers and local administrators into lesson plans. We're also, of course, working on, um, you know, the, the, the broader perspective of influencing state-based uh, uh, curricula, but that's, that's a longer-term uh, longer project. We brought uh, John Peaty, who's the longest-serving um, chairman of the National Endowment for Humanities, and uh, economist Dave Rose at the University of Missouri-St. Louis together to direct this project. And it is trying to tell the story of America. It's trying to tell it within the context of Western civilization uh, through a narrative of cooperation as opposed to oppression. We got here 
living this very prosperous, free life, not because of ever greater and more efficient oppression of people, but through uh, ever greater um, uh, cooperation, voluntary exchange. We need to understand that story, weave in human nature, lessons from history and basic economics. And obviously, we're working with a number of groups um, to, uh, to help make this successful. That's great. Uh, there are so many groups working on this, and it is a great partnership that's really developing on this, this civic side. So, so wrapping up here, what does success look like for Common Sense Society? I mean, 10, 20 years from now, you look back, what do you anticipate being able to, to see to mark real progress? Well, as I said, we're going to do our best to be uh, an effective and reliable uh, little platoon in this ecosystem. I think uh, competition uh, is going to strengthen the libertarian conservative m- movement. Uh, we're, we're coming out of you know, our organic path into promoting liberty, prosperity, and beauty. Uh, we are cooperating across borders. We think it's you know, very important to be able to leverage um, you know, knowledge, resources, lessons learned across borders. Um, that's something that I think collectivists uh, from Davos on, on through a number of other organizations that have been working for many years have been a little bit more effective at. And, uh, and we want to make uh, a real contribution uh, to the developing alternative education uh, in this country and, and make sure that we are, um, we're helping to equip uh, competent citizens and this gets into some of our civic uh, engagement at the local level. We want to help create pathways for citizens to get involved, uh, to be appointed to local commissions of all kinds, because there are so many thousands across the country that uh, we just need uh, sound thinking people uh, to fill those posts, uh, let alone uh, thousands of local elected officials uh, as well. That's great. Well, it's, a, it's a bold mission. I love the tri-legged stool of liberty, prosperity, and beauty. And uh, Marion Smith, really glad you and Common Sense Society are out there. Wonderful to talk to you, Peter. The first time our next guest, Margarita Mooney Clayton, talked with our team about her new organization, then new organization, Scala Foundation, based at Princeton Theological Seminary. I won't lie, I didn't get it. Uh, But I did catch one thing, and that was the idea of putting beauty as a centerpiece for the exploration of ideas, which was a a fascinating concept, and I knew she had something with that. Well, fast forward several years, Scala is now a growing organization that is changing lives and changing perspectives. So, Margarita, to make sure I really get it now, give us the big picture of what Scala Foundation is. I started Scala as a nonprofit because I really want to restore restore meaning and purpose to American culture. And I thought that bringing beauty into the dialogue about liberal arts education would be an extremely important complement to much of the important work being done to uphold institutions of freedom in the United States. What I think people often don't recall is that the tradition of freedom in America also grows out of this idea that not only do we know truth in a rational, analytic way, but that the beautiful attracts us and therefore leads us to the good and makes us want to know the truth and prepares us to not only know the truth, but to act in accordance with what we have known. So what does that look like practically on a day-to-day basis with, uh, with Scala? Scala began and continues to be a community of intensive work with students at Princeton Theological Seminary, Princeton University, and students in the community 
to read and study and learn what is the tradition of liberal arts education and what is the meaning of freedom as it has come to be understood in the Western world. And what's unique about Scala is that we bring embodied experiences of beauty, whether that be experiences in nature and increasingly with music and with art, precisely to help students who may be already convinced of much of the meaning of a kind of conservative vision of political freedom or economic freedom, but help them see that through embodied experiences of beauty, they can share the truth that they have with others in a way that's inviting and attractive in an environment that is increasingly divisive, where students are not connecting with each other on an intimate way, where differences so quickly become arguments. So Scala also has publications. We have an active blog. We have published two books. And in one of the recent books, I had a conversation with James Matthew Wilson, who explained that sort of in the Russell Kirk kind of conservative mindset, beauty was fundamental to freedom the kind of freedom that I was talking about. So in addition to the intensive work we do as students, Scala supports an ongoing blog and publications to help raise awareness about the integral part of beauty in upholding freedom and really renewing culture. So that's the other part of what we do is the awareness raising, bringing together scholars with, with also today's leading writers and musicians and artists, right? Just think. C.S. Lewis and Gerald Tolkien met in cafes at Oxford to work out their ideas. Um, composers met with each other across coffee and tea, or artists meeting in Paris to renew some of the great traditions of sacred art. Artists also need places where they're meeting together with scholars and with the people that they're aiming their art for. So by founding a program that's trying to bring together scholars with students, with artists, we're trying to create these communities, places where these conversations about beauty and freedom can take place in a way that's also embodying the truths that we hold in material form. Again, this sounds like highfalutin language, but a lot of students come out of the elite institutions, elite in the sense of hard to get into, and their only understanding of the truth is an abstract one. It's a set of principles. I, I believe in those principles, but if we don't know how to translate the principles of freedom and the tr principles of the human person as created with an inherent dignity that gives them freedom, and if we don't know how to translate that into music, art, and architecture, either as creating those forms or knowing how to appreciate the ones that are leading us to the good and the ones that are leading us astray, well, guess what? Young people are going to be drawn into radical political movements that precisely know how to present images, story, and music that mislead. I was going to ask about... If, if it was too harsh to say that some of the things that you're offering are things that the students are just, that the now liberal arts education, which used to include a lot of that stuff, just doesn't include anymore. I mean, is that is that fair to say that a lot of these students are just not getting it at what we would typically call liberal arts education? Definitely not. There's been a shift away from preserving the humanities into more and more technical fields or even the social sciences, economics, uh, sociology, those fields have something good to say, right? 
but the foundation of the truths about who we are as a human person, those are moral questions. They're philosophical, they're theological. And I tell students like, you can't ignore 2000 years of thinking about human freedom and think you're gonna get there through big data or a big machine. And the cost of getting it wrong when you're manipulating big data to have a policy impact or creating the next machine that's gonna shape human interaction with computers, the cost of getting it wrong is tremendous. So students aren't getting it for that reason. But on the other hand, even with the the burst in kind of a more conservative classical liberal arts movement in K-12 education or programs on many college campuses, they are rightly trying to preserve the political texts and the economic ideas. But there hasn't been enough focus on the traditions of beauty, right? Classical music was an inherent part of common culture. Architecture is part of our civic life. Art is supposed to lead us to awe and to wonder, not to kind of a um, um, imagination that's disconnected from reality. So we can't only restore the conservative or the classical tradition through texts on politics or economics. We have got to go to the heart of the matter, which is also the material forms of culture. You're based at Princeton Theological, uh, which is in Princeton, but is not part of the university, uh, which uh, I know I I had to be disabused of at some point. Um, It's its own thing. And Scala is obviously, therefore, has a faith component to us. Talk to us a little bit about that aspect of the work. So Scala as you mentioned, is at Princeton Theological Seminary. And faith communities have a particular calling to use beauty properly for worship, right? Music and art. It's it's an integral part of worship. But interestingly, it's not always been preserved, even in faith communities. Beyond that, there's a theological component to the understanding of the human person as created in the image of God, right? Now, people from different Christian denominations will affirm that. It is kind of a fundamental Christian belief. But the idea that humans have a special dignity, I think, resonates even with people outside of the Christian tradition. Uh, People who understand the human being as having a transcendent purpose, as not being purely material in a reductionistic, scientific kind of way. So a big part of what Scala is trying to do is shore up this understanding of the human the human person as having dignity, that that's what gives us freedom. Freedom is not an accomplishment of a political or economic system. It's inherent to who we are as human beings. And because I'm I'm a Roman Catholic, but I teach at a historically Presbyterian institution, Scala is ecumenical. It's trying to bring these questions into dialogue, acknowledging our differences, but in a way that there is an end goal of seeking the truth together. And I think when I engage with my colleagues at Princeton University, which I do all the time, and in the talks I give to all different kinds of audiences, one of the points I simply want to make is that if I have theological presuppositions, I hope that that helps you identify what your presuppositions are. And if those are enlightenment, rationalism, or scientism, I just want to bring up the question that that's not a neutral position. It arose in a particular point in time from a particular set of thinkers. And it was posited as somehow being 
accessible, universally rational outside of any particular cultural context. But that actually takes it out of history and it takes it out of human beings and makes it somehow superior in being neutral or universal or objective. And as if anybody who questions it isn't rational. And so what has happened in so many universities is that the theological has been deemed you know, a personal or a purely subjective and everything about philosophical enlightenment, rationalism or scientism is somehow true simply because it's supposedly neutral. And what I'm trying to say is, look, let's all get our presuppositions out on the table. That's it's really interesting. Now, so earlier you mentioned the content side. It's not just interacting with the students. You have the content. I, I really enjoyed a piece on your blog, uh, which I encourage people to check out by your husband, David Clayton, uh, that was kind of exploring the idea of if beauty is worth it. Big knock against, uh, you know, the costs involved in beauty. And uh, we could probably talk for a long time about that. But one of the other big pieces of uh, content you have coming up is a conference, the Art, the Sacred, and the Common Good. So as we close out, tell us about that conference, who can attend, uh, what the aim is. Uh, tell us about that. So the conference takes place on April 21st and 22nd this year, 2023, on the campuses of Princeton Theological Seminary and Princeton University, which are beautiful places to experience great built architecture, landscape architecture, music, visits to the library archives, all of which we have built into the program. So the program starts with experiencing the beauty that Princeton has to offer. On Saturday, there are lectures by world-renowned iconographers, Aidan Hart and Jonathan Pajot, both of whom in the art forms that they create and the public speaking and the writing they do are excellent at helping audiences of educators, students, patrons of the arts, lovers of freedom, to understand that art embodies these, should embody these ideals I was just talking about. Number one, the dignity of the human person, which is what Aiden Hart will talk about. And number two, art as a fundamental component of civic life and identity, which is what Jonathan Pajot will be speaking about. There will be opportunities to interact with them over breakout sessions, also to hear from Anna Bond, a very successful graphic artist who started Rifle Paper Company, which shows that there really is a demand for traditional forms of beautiful things for the home. And there will be um, a discussion amongst all of the speakers about where do we go from here? How do we continue to build these communities and conversations and get these ideas in our schools and also in our common life. That's why the conference is called Art, the Sacred, and the Common Good, because we fundamentally believe that the forms of art we're discussing and the kinds of ideas we're discussing belong in our civic architecture and in our schools. Those of you who want even more time with our lineup of speakers, there will be some opportunities for those who are able to sponsor the conference to have dinner with the speakers at my home um, or on a dinner we're going to have Friday night here in town. And there'll even be an art exhibit at the Clayton home of the latest art by my husband, David Clayton, landscapes as well as some new icons for a book on how to celebrate liturgical feasts and the importance of the church calendar to ordering time and shared life.
I think this is great. And Marguerite, I appreciate, I, I do understand Scala a lot better now. I understand its role. And, and I think it's so important that we continue to expand these ideas and remember, you know, it's not just all book learning. It's, there's a, there's a lot that complements that in, in our surrounding world that actually makes it more rich and more, more wonderful. So good luck to you and, and everything that Scala's doing. Thank you, Peter. I think we really share this idea that economics should be about abundance, just as freedom is about abundance. And we need to move past this kind of win-lose understanding um, of culture and nature and beauty, because beauty reminds us that humans have creativity. And with freedom, true freedom, we will have abundance of goods in the material realm for us to share together. Our next group we're going to turn to is the National Civic Art Society. I first met its president, Justin Strubel, when I overheard him mention a mutual friend to somebody in a hotel ballroom in Florida, which the last time I had been in that room was for a Common Sense Society event, and come to learn that Marion was previously chairman of Justin's board. And so it's just funny how small the world is, even here in the expanding liberty movement. So, Justin, I am thrilled you're here and, and excited to talk about National Civic Arts Society. Why don't you give us an overview of what you're doing? Sure. So the National Civic Arts Society uh, was founded in 2002. We're a 501c3 nonprofit uh, or um, headquartered in Washington, D.C. We exist to promote classical public art and architecture. We believe that that is the ideal way um, to create a civic world that embodies America's highest ideals. We look back to the founding fathers who consciously chose the classical style um, for our core buildings of government and for the new nation's architecture. And we wish to further and expand upon that tradition. Um, I should say that not only do we look at architecture, but we also do look at our monuments and memorials as well since these works are so crucial to um, fostering our national identity and historic memory. And for decades, some have been done terribly, and we have been trying to tra change the direction of that. So I want to dig into some of these projects you've been working on, but let's keep it a little more abstract for a second. You know, one of my favorite lines from that great television show, The Simpsons, was when the town's evil rich guy, Monty Burns, looks at a self-portrait of himself and declares, I know what I hate, and I don't hate this. So isn't architecture kind of really in that same subjective camp? I mean, we like what we like. Well, I think there is a fundamental human nature um, that causes there to be widespread agreement about what buildings are beautiful and what buildings are ugly. I mean, I don't think there are too many Americans who look at the U.S. Capitol building and think that is ugly. And on the flip side, there has been a long, persistent um, dislike of brutalist buildings for, for many decades. Um, the National Civic Arts Society in 2020 um, did a survey by the Harris Poll of Americans' preferences in federal architecture. And there was widespread support for classical and traditional design over modernism. I mean, 72% of the 2000 American survey preferred tradition. And I think when you get such a widespread majority, and there were majorities across every de demographic group, race, gender, socioeconomic, also political party affiliation, I would I would not call that a you know a matter of well subjectivity you like this I like that when we're coming when we're looking at projects that are 
funded by taxpayer dollars and that speak to who we are as Americans, we should look to what the majority wants. Yeah, it's hard to get 72% of Americans to agree on most anything. So if you can if you can combine them towards architecture, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. So one of your big projects uh, that I know we've chatted about before is that great eyesore of modern transportation, Penn Station in New York. I was there the other day and just reminded at how sad it, it is to be in there. Tell us about what you're trying to do there. So the original Penn Station was completed in 1910. It was this magnificent Beaux-Arts structure that had a soaring main hall um, that was classical inspired by the ancient Roman baths of Caracalla. And then there was a train shed featuring gorgeous steel and glass arches. Um, the building was so beautiful inspiring that Langston Hughes wrote an entire poem about it in which he called it a bulwark for the soul. I mean, to me, that is indicative of the great power of classical architecture, the great poetry and beauty um, which unfortunately start, started to disappear um, after World War II. Um, and in fact, the, that Penn Station was demolished in 1963 and replaced by this dingy, dark um, rabbit warren. Um, it's one of the worst places in America. Um, one architectural historian famously said, you used to enter the city like a god, now you scuttle in like a rat. And my organization has been seeking to undo that wrong um, by building a new classical station at the same site that is inspired by and evocative of the original. Um, originally, we were calling for a relatively literal reconstruction of the entire station, but now we're more focused on using aspects of the original design while at the same time incorporating some green space um, where Madison Square Garden currently sits. Because it's important to understand that Madison Square Garden squats directly over the train station, which is one reason why it feels so cramped and why there's so little light. Yeah, it's a stark contrast to Grand Central Station, which still has those soaring walls and columns, and, and, and it's lovely. What are the, candidly, what are the chances of getting this done? How, what's the path forward? Well... You know, it's obviously a struggle. Even just getting Madison Square Garden to move um, is difficult, but there have been some positive developments. Um, there's been a lot of talk of the garden moving and dislike of the current owners um, who are looking for a renewal of a special permit to keep operating. And that permit, the permit that they've had for decades is, is running out. Um, and so we're hoping that the New York City Council, which has power over that permit, um, will use it um, as leverage to move to move the garden. Um, and at the same time, our experience has been when we show stakeholders, politicians, members of the public, our proposal, there has been tremendously positive feedback. Um, we recently saw a you know very strong column in the New York Post, um, you know praising praising this design. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, you have to think big. And sometimes I think when you really have a bold project like this, it, you know, will inspire people and come to fruition. I think thinking big is, is critical and we don't get anywhere if we don't, right? 
Right. So you had a stint as the chairman of the U.S. Commission on Fine Arts. I don't think this is an entity a lot of people follow closely, uh, although maybe people who listen to this podcast in particular are, are really keen on it. But tell us about what it does, why it matters, and, and maybe a little bit about your, your time on, on the commission. Sure. So the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, which was established in 1910, is an independent federal agency that is the aesthetic guardian of Washington, D.C., um, it's the review authority um, of what is constructed and in certain areas of the city. So, for instance, the monumental core, including you know, the area around the National Mall, the um, commission has outright approval authority, meaning projects cannot get built unless the commission approves them. And the commission itself is um, made up of seven commissioners who are appointed by the president to four-year terms. Um, so the commission plays a very important role in, um, you know, influencing what Washington, D.C. looks like. I mean, I think so many Americans, um, you know, just love the look and the, you know, inspiring aspects of Washington, D.C. Um, and the Commission of Fine Arts today can either continue, um, you know, the best of our tradition or lead us astray and approve things that ought not to be approved. Um, so what is significant about my time on the commission? So for, for many decades, I mean, since World War II, one might say, the commission was almost entirely modernist in orientation. But President Trump um, appointed me, I was his first appointment to the commission, and obviously I represented a strong um, preference for classical and traditional design. And then later, President Trump nominated a number of other commissioners such that the entire seven-member body was classical in orientation. Um, it really represented a sea change. And, you know, the intent was to prevent future monstrosities from being built, such as the grandiose Eisenhower Memorial or the brutalist Hirshhorn Museum that was constructed in the 1960s. Unfortunately, when President Biden took office, he removed me and three other commissioners from the commission, um, violating 110 years of history in which no commissioner had ever been removed by the president. I mean, you have to understand, we were appointed to four-year terms. They're not intended to be political appointments. And it's a very sad day to see the politicization of the commission like that. And the White House released a statement in which they said that the president removed us because our strong support of classical design did not support what the president's values, which I think is pretty astonishing because I think what we represent is the consensus view in America. Right. Wow. That is disappointing, particularly because it's such a leveraged place to advance these ideas that you work on and spend your life on. And, you know, kind of to, to that point and to kind of wrap up, what are some of the ways for donors who are listening, you've heard this episode, uh, are thinking more about beauty and public spaces and architecture and more broadly, how can they use their dollars, their time to advance these ideas? Well, of course, I would encourage you to consider um, making a gift to the National Civic Arts Society. You can look up our website at www.civicart.org where you can find a lot more about what we do, our, our achievements. And, um, but in general, 
I mean, look for organizations that are, are achieving real results in this field. Um, honestly, I don't know if there are that many. Um, we're pretty unusual in working in this space. But something else that philanthropists can do is look to become patrons of the right sort of um, artists and architects who build the world in which uh, we, we wish to live. Um, I mean, some, some philanthropists are in positions to hire architects for architecture that's going to be enjoyed by the public. And it's important to choose the right architects for the job. That's a great point. Well, Justin, I think what you're doing is, is fascinating and, and very important. And I uh, really look to see continued success from the National Civic Arts Society. Well, thanks so much for having me. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. When many of us put on our small government fiscal responsibility hats, it is easy to turn a blind eye to the effects of the beautiful in our natural and built environments. Look, we've got a lot of problems to solve out there, and it almost seems like a distraction to focus on elements of beauty. But perhaps there is another lesson we need to take away from today's conversation, one that we only hit on in the abstract a little bit, and that is that it is possible to be both beautiful and functional to be both aesthetically and factually sound. I want to put out a call to all the groups advancing liberty to take an iPhone approach to advancing a freedom agenda. You know, the iPhone was beautifully and thoughtfully designed, but it was also brilliantly conceived and was top-notch tech. I am excited to see more and more groups thinking through not just the substance of their message, but the presentation as well. Yes, it takes a little bit more work, but it has the power to persuade with more force. We don't need to cede beauty to the left. After all, what is more beautiful than liberty and human flourishing? Many thanks to the Common Sense Society, Scala Foundation, and the National Civic Arts Society for joining us today. Links to these groups and, and various resources are all available at donorstrust.org podcast. If you haven't subscribed to the show already, please do in your favorite podcast server. There is so much going on in the fight for freedom, and I am excited to keep sharing it with you. And of course, we at Donors Trust want to offer you a beautiful and elegant way to do your charitable giving. Visit DonorsTrust.org to learn how we might do that or, and, and give us a call. As always, thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon. Thank you.